Well, we are going to begin a new sermon series today. I titled it The Once and Future King, knowing that probably only one person in our entire congregation might recognize that title, maybe a few. And then ironically, I think, Kim Dow, you are reading this right now, so of all things, by, by White. So The Once and Future King, David and Christ. We're going to be looking at First and Second Samuel over the next several months together. And we'll be looking at how David in particular typifies, foreshadows Christ, and also how God's promise to build for David a house, to establish a dynasty, has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So today's passage is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. We'll start with reading the first eight verses right now. And I was reminded that it wasn't just a few years ago, it was several years ago. It's amazing how time has flown by, but we had said that we were going to be transitioning slowly to the English Standard Version. I guess we transition slowly because today is when we start. We're going to be starting to use ESV. In the meantime, a lot of you started buying Reformation Study Bibles and ESV and so on. So here we are at ESV. I was just behind the curve. I'm sorry about that. We're going to uh, start with ESV today. It seems like a great time to do it as we begin First Samuel chapter 1. So stand, if you will, verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the other his name was Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, and often as she went up to the house of the Lord, as often she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat, and Elkanah her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, as we begin to delve deeply into First and Second Samuel in these weeks to come, I pray that you would help us to be excited about how long before Jesus you laid the groundwork and foundation for preparing your people for the King of Kings. And so as we look at Samuel and as we see Saul and David and ultimately as we, we see Christ in these books I pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, anytime you start a new book of the Bible, it's important to establish the historical, geographical context of the book. And so a natural question is to say, where in time and space are we in Samuel? When do these events take place? In 1 Kings chapter 6, you may not think to go all the way to, to Kings, but 1 Kings 6.1 actually gives us an important anchor point. And that's because in that verse we read, in the fourth, 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, so 480 years after the Exodus, 
in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is in the second month, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. So Solomon was four years into his reign when he started the construction of the temple. And that anchor point there in 1 Kings says it's 480 years after the Exodus. And so that's extremely helpful because it's much easier for us to go back and try and figure out when Solomon reigned and when the temple was built. And it's been nearly universally agreed that that was in the mid-900s B.C. So that would put the Exodus in the mid-1400s B.C. And at the time of Eli and Samuel, we're looking at around 1130 B.C. Now, Saying all of that, mid-900s, mid-1400s, to someone who lives in the 21st century, it all makes, you know, it all sounds the same to us, right? We have a hard enough time imagining life a few hundred years ago, try a few millennia ago. But what's interesting about trying to nail down those dates is that when you then go to the book of Judges, for example, we're given time slots. We're given periods of of people's reign as a judge, and, and we're told what took place, obviously 40 years, for example, wandering in the wilderness, and we can begin to construct a rough timeline. And while there are some challenges, some commentators think that a few of the events and judges might overlap one another, those challenges kind of pan out into two main timelines, and I wanted to, to tell you that because let me tell you what, what happens on one of those timelines. In one of those timelines, Samson dies right before Eli starts to reign. In the other timeline, which is actually favored by a lot of commentators, Samson is still living at the time of Eli. And so it's interesting to me, at least, to think that uh, as Eli and Samuel are in Shiloh in the north, and we'll see that in just a moment, that Samson might be, uh, you know, down in the southwest of them, and some of the events that are taking place in the end of Judges are actually detailing the life and times of Samuel. How do we know that? Well, the reason why a lot of commentators favor that second alternative is because in Judges, at the end of the book, it talks about the 40-year oppression of Israel by the Philistines. And what do we have starting in chapter 4 in Samuel? We have oppression by the Philistines of Israel. And so that's why I thought you'd find it interesting, perhaps, that that's what's taking place with Samson, with Samuel, with Eli, and others. But you know what? Ultimately, whether Samson dies right before Eli or he's still living, what you should know is the end of Judges, when we finished that book a few months ago, that description of the culture of the time, of people doing whatever was right in their own eyes, of rampant idolatry in the land, of people not speaking and calling upon the name of the Lord, that is Samuel's time. Okay? So let's keep that in mind. And then, I want you to recognize that because of that, because of this, what I'll call a barren period for Israel, when we have in chapter 1, a godly woman who has been barren and is praying for a child, Samuel. That this is, this is the one who will be a prophet, who will be a judge, who will be establishing the kingship in Israel. 
we need to be thinking that things are going on on a macro level beyond just Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel, that God is telling us something, teaching us something. And, and maybe Hannah is, in a way, typifying this, the nation of Israel as she calls out in her affliction of barrenness for a child, for God's salvation. I mean, think of how similar Samuel's story is to that of John the Baptist. Just as John was the one who prepared the way for King Jesus, so Samuel is the one who prepares the way for David, the king. You wouldn't say that the story in, in Luke about Zechariah and, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John, is primarily about an older couple who's really been praying for a long time, and look how God miraculously blessed them with the child. Even though that's an important thing, that's not what that story of Zacharias and Elizabeth is primarily about. Instead, the circumstances of John's birth, they're unusual. They demonstrate that God miraculously intervenes to bring his salvation and to make sure that John is born. That same thing is true here. In fact, the parallel, like I say, between Hannah being barren and Israel being fruitless and Elizabeth being barren is, is beyond just coincidental. So, that's the time. What about the place? Well, for your benefit, on the backs of the outlines that I printed, I put together a map for you because I know sometimes when people just say, so-and-so, a few miles north of this, etc., that's hard to envision. So if you happen to pick up those outlines uh, or you can share with one near you, let's look at this place. Verse 1 mentions that Elkanah, Samuel's father, was a man of Ramatham Zophim. Where was that? Well, Ramatham in Hebrew means two hills. It's the longer name for Ramah, which we're going to see uh, the most of in this book. And it's most likely at the border of Ephraim and Judah, about five miles or so north of what would later be the city of Jerusalem. And you can see that on the map. Okay, this is where Samuel's going to later live. He's going to uh, rule and reign as a judge, serve as a judge anyway. Elkanah is said to have been the great-great-grandson of Zuth, the Ephrathite. Now, when you hear Ephrathah, what does that bring to your mind? It should bring to your mind uh, the, the passage in, in the Old Testament about Bethlehem Epaphrathah, right? An Ephrathite was one who lived in the area that would later be called Bethlehem. And that's about 10 miles southwest of Ramah. Just kind of giving you a picture, especially with that map of where we are in space. But here's the question. What does it matter that Elkanah was related to Zuf, who lived in Bethlehem, Ephrathah? What does that matter? Well, it matters because Samuel was not an Ephraimite. And the author is being very careful to make sure that we understand that even though his father came from Ramah, which was an Ephraim, that is great, great, and we'll see that in a different book, actually, in 1 Chronicles 6.33, that is great, 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 and you could go on for several generations, grandfather was Levi. 1 Chronicles 6.33 says that Heman the psalmist, one of the three wisest men in all of Israel, was the grandson of Samuel. Don't know if you knew that. 
He was the grandson of Samuel, who was the son of Elkanah. We've read that in verse 1. Who was a great-great-grandson of Zuth, who was the 14th generation grandson of Levi, not Ephraim. And we, of course, don't want to find, have to ask the questions later in the book of, well, why is Samuel offering sacrifices? Why is he operating like a Levite and giving Saul a hard time, right? Well, the answer is because he was a Levite. And it helps explain why Hannah might think of dedicating to service at the tabernacle her son. Well, the name Hannah means favored one. And the moment that someone would be reading this book, this book of 1 Samuel, in the original language and heard Hannah, the favored one who's barren, that would automatically come together into a, uh, an irony, wouldn't it? You'd be saying, how, does, how is that possible that this individual who's barren, and oftentimes barrenness was associated with uh, the lack of blessing of God, sometimes even the curse of God. How could barrenness and the rest of chapter 1 brings out the torment of a rival wife be considered favored? Well, to understand how one can be favored and yet suffer is to understand from a biblical perspective what it truly means to be favored by God. You see, is it not to be favored by the grace of God with faith? Is it not to be favored by God to actually suffer under his, as we read in Hebrews not that long ago, the loving discipline of God who even allows us to go through trials in order to refine us and sanctify us? Throughout our life, very few favored children of God have carefree lives with no struggles. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Often the favored ones are the ones who suffer the most, while their persecutors are the ones that seem to be fruitful and favored by the world. So despite persecution by the world, God is kind to his favored ones. He provides the strength for each day, and he offers his spirit and comfort, not unlike Elkanah, who offered extra kindness to to Hannah in the midst of her trouble. And note that Hannah was not only favored with faith, but she was favored with the kindness of God, right? She would indeed become personally favored, just like Elizabeth, just like Mary, just like Sarah, and others with a child who would serve the kingdom in a unique way. So being favored of God does not necessarily equate to being favored by the world, and that was true, of course, in Hannah's case. Leaving aside for a moment this issue of barrenness, we can clearly see that her personal life was often difficult. Her husband seems to to be a godly man. After all, Elkanah yearly took his family up to Shiloh to offer sacrifice at the tabernacle. But his life, wouldn't you agree, was seriously compromised with having two wives? Now, to be sure, in the context of the Old Testament, and particularly in the context of the period of the Old Testament that we're in, this wasn't all that odd. Abraham had more than one wife, so did Jacob, Solomon. Well, he had too many to count, right? But it wasn't that way in Eden. And God did not create man to have multiple wives. God said that a man would leave his home and and cleave to his wife. Singular. Not not two wives and not 300 wives. 
and they would become one flesh. And so some of the things that took place in the Old Testament period did so because of sin. And I I don't know why Elkanah had two wives. But even though it was culturally permissible at this time, we can see from our passage that it was a cause of much grief in his family. And so we go next to Hannah's prayer in verses 9 and following. But as we do, I want you to to note Elkanah's question in verse 8. Am I not worth more to you than, than ten sons? God asks that question sometimes of you also, doesn't he? Am I not worth more to you than all the things your heart desires, including children? Including a spouse? Including the things of the world? So Hannah, she's sorrowful over her barren condition, and therefore she brings her sorrows to the Lord. But I want you to think more broadly again for a moment. Would it be possible that God providentially brought about this situation? And I know the immediate answer for most of you theologically is yes, because we all believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, and therefore everything is in his providence. But think about what I'm asking on the level of one human being, Hannah, who is not able to bear a child. Did God providentially close her womb for a purpose? And then we consider this verse from Deuteronomy 7, verse 12, in which Moses tells Israel, if you listen to these laws and keep them, The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb. There shall not be male or female barren among you or your livestock. That's what Moses had said. Could it be, like I said earlier, hinted at that Hannah, in a way, providentially, is representing barren Israel who has turned away from God? where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, who's turning after idols, could it be that in representing fruitless Israel, that God uses her condition to show his great mercy and power in bringing life from death? Could it be that he is signaling, even as he did with Zacharias and Elizabeth or Abraham and Sarah, that he is about to bring to fruition the salvation of his people? I think that's what's happening here. And it makes sense how in chapter 2 then, verse 10, that Hannah is prophesying about the future. She recognizes that this isn't just about her and her child-to-be. She prophesies in the next chapter, verse 10, about God in the future exalting the horn of his anointed and giving strength to his king. So yes, definitely there's something on a macro scale going on here that is crossing generations. But, but Hannah, Hannah didn't necessarily know that, even though I think the Spirit is motivating her in, in the next chapter to prophesy about the future. At least as she comes to the Lord, what she knows is her current situation. She knows she's barren. She knows she's tormented. And she brings it to the Lord. And so let's go back to her level and see what happens and read her prayer. Read with me there in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, 
Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. She was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved, and and her voice was not heard. And so Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not forget your, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, it's a daughter of Belial, is, is translated worthless woman. It's, it's even stronger than that. Don't regard me as a, as a daughter of one of the false gods of our country. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived Nabor's son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So Eli is said to have been sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Well, this is not the temple, right? This is not the temple that Solomon is going to build. According to historians, the Jewish people had, however, built a semi-permanent structure around the tabernacle. It had been in Shiloh for a long, long time. They'd even come to call it a temple. Well, here is Eli. He's sitting on a seat. And most people sat on the ground, but those who sat in seats were typically those of great honor or wealth. And the irony here is that Eli, sitting on what we might think of as like a a throne of, of the high priest, is so used to corruption in his sons. So used to corruption in his sons. So used to corruption around him that his first thought, his first interpretation of Hannah is that she's drunk. I wonder how common that was in Shiloh. I like what one commentator writes. He says, many believers in churches today find themselves in the situation of Hannah. The favored ones, the remnant earnest to remain faithful to the Lord and his word, suffer because of indifference or active persecution from corrupt leaders. Eli and his sons preside at the sanctuary. And all the big churches, the big budgets, and the big libraries are at Shiloh. Panina seems to be the fruitful one, while Hannah remains barren. Since we are a barren people, however, our hope is in the one who raises the dead and in him alone. And our first task is to plead with him to open the womb. And by opening the womb, that that commentator means pleading with God to make us fruitful in the face of what seems like overwhelming opposition. There are good things in what Hannah does. She, she turns to the Lord in her distress. She acknowledges in verse 11 that God is the Lord of hosts. And that she is a servant. And just as God had once seen, and I, I, again, I, I want to encourage us, let us be looking at things for kind of the, the macro scale. 
for the foreshadowing, the typifying of what's to come. Just as God had once heard the affliction of the people, the same language is being lifted up by Hannah. Lord, hear my cry. Hear my, just like the, the Exodus, the, the folks in Israel had lifted up their cry and God had heard it. Would God do for her what he had done for Israel in the days of Moses? Would he deliver her from her bondage of barrenness? Will he deliver the nation of Israel that has turned away from God? Now, if we stop there, we might think that Hannah just wants a child so she can fulfill whatever she thought her role was as a wife. So that the torment of Penina would stop. But if that's the case, why offer her son for a lifetime of service at the temple? Why ask for something with the intent to give it away? If you can answer that question, then you will have the key to this chapter. Let me explain what's happening here. Verse 9 mentions Elkanah and his family eating and drinking at Shiloh. This does not mean that they stopped at the local restaurant and then went up to the tabernacle. Okay, that's not what it's saying. And they're not at home. So it's not saying that they were on the dinner table and then got up and you know, went to Shiloh. Remember, they're from Ramah. They're 15 miles away. They've traveled on foot. They've traveled for the annual set of sacrifices that were given at the tabernacle. And one of those sacrifices by a family was what was called a peace offering. And the peace offering was given every year as a type of thanksgiving for being at peace with God. It was also given when a person had made a vow and then performed it. And the peace offering was the only offering that the sacrificers would eat themselves, a part of it. And they would eat it there at the tabernacle. You can see that in Leviticus and Numbers as it describes the peace offering. So part of the sacrifice was burned at the altar. And the rest was eaten by the person or the household bringing the offering. And then actually everyone else that was right there at the tabernacle at that time was brought over to eat with them. It was like a, a small feasting party, right? As they celebrate their thanksgiving for God. Or the fact that they had performed a vow that they had made. Now Elkanah and his wives, Panina and Hannah, and Panina's children, they're all eating and drinking the peace offering. Okay? And it's at this time each year as they went up to the house of the Lord, in particular, that according to verse 8, Panina would torment Hannah. Don't you wish you had something to be thankful about, Hannah? I'm sure thankful. Look at how God has blessed me with children. What's wrong with you? Why has God turned away from you? And verse 8 says that Hannah would not eat. I don't know if she wouldn't eat because she wasn't thankful or wasn't feeling at peace or simply because in her sorrow she had lost her appetite. What I do know is that on this particular visit to the tabernacle, Hannah must have thought about how the peace offering also was used as a praise to God and celebration of a vow that had been made and kept. What could she vow to God? What could she vow? And I believe in that moment that Hannah realized that what she truly desired was to know that God heard her cry. 
That God heard her cry, that he cared for his people, that he could bring life from death, a child from a barren womb. And so she prays that God would bless her in this unique way, and yet she shows her faith and her right priorities by offering in a vow to give back to God the very thing he would give her. Imagine if God's glory and kingdom were the basis of every request that we made. Lord, I pray that you would help me with this interview today so that when I have a stable job, I can give back to you what you've given me. Lord, I pray for a child so that I can devote him or her to your service. Lord, I pray for a marriage so that I may illustrate Christ's relationship to his church and so share the gospel as a testimony. Well, what should we apply from this passage? Well, that. And then perhaps we should start with what the passage doesn't teach. This is not a passage that's intended to suggest that when we are sufficiently sorrowful and pray with the right kind of faith and sincerity that God answers our prayer in the way that we desire. There were undoubtedly other barren women in Israel. After all, we saw from Deuteronomy that that one of the blessings of faithfulness was there wouldn't be barrenness, but one of the curses of God to a people that turned away from him was that there would be barren women and barren livestock. So isn't it reasonable to assume that many of those women also prayed? And isn't it also reasonable to conclude that many of them did not receive a child? In other words, we are... We're told the story not because it's typical of every troubled person, but because Hannah's story was unusual. Of all the troubled women in Israel, God chose to grant Hannah's prayer because this is about God. This is, what, this is about what God is, is going to do. Does that mean he only listens to some prayers? No, the Bible is clear that God delights to hear our prayers and the prayers of his people. It's true, though, that some prayers are not answered because they're offered in a wrong spirit or wrong motives, as the book of James explains. But others are not answered the way we desire because they either don't fit with God's plan or simply would not be what is best for us and for others. Had God not given Hannah a child, it would only have meant that God did not intend Hannah to have a child according to his purposes. I hope that's clear about God and answering prayer. It's always going to be in relationship to his kingdom, his plan and purpose, and your good and the good of others. One author wrote, whatever the reasons for the apparent silence of God, we may rest assured that hearing prayer is the law of his kingdom. The Old Testament, the New, they bear witness to that. Every verse of the Psalms proclaims it. The example of our Lord constantly enforces it. Every apostle takes up this theme and urges the duty and the privilege of prayer. And what true Christian is there who cannot add testimony of his own history to the same effect? So if the answer to some of your prayers, the author says, has been delayed has the answer to others, not, not to mention many of them, not come to pass? And if there be prayers that have not yet been answered or in reference to which you have no knowledge of an answer, can you afford to wait 
upon God for an explanation? Can you not afford to wait? And when the explanation comes, can you not much cause to believe that it will redound to his praise? And that many things in reference to which you could at the time see nothing when it was dark and terrible may turn out when fully explained to furnish new and overwhelming testimony that God is love. So a good reminder about prayer. But in this particular case, God grants Hannah's prayer. He gives her a child. But why? Certainly not because of Hannah's sincerity or misery. Or even because she made an extraordinary vow as if God said, Really? You would give me your child? How remarkable. Okay. No, well, Hannah is an example for us up to a point. Her story is not about how to pray or even about herself and Elkanah. It is about how God heard the affliction of his people represented in Hannah's cries and as with the Exodus, how he had mercy upon them again, preparing a way for David by bringing about Samuel. And even David's not the ultimate point. Because David is preparation for a greater King Jesus. So really, Hannah, the story of Samuel, it's about preparing the way for Christ. Preparing the way for Jesus. I said one thing that we should not take as an application, namely that if we're sincere enough to ask, sorrowfully enough, or make the right vows, that God will answer our prayers the way we want. Well, what should we take as an application? How about that if you're weighed down in, in sorrow, that the right thing to do is, like Hannah, to turn to the Lord in prayer to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, because he has blessed you in Jesus. And that confidence that we can cast our cares upon the Lord should change us. I want you to hear that part again. Because you'll often hear people talk about Quoting the Bible verse of cast your cares upon the Lord and and then encourage you, go cast your cares upon the Lord. But here's what should happen when you go in prayer to God. You should be changed by the experience. Verse 18, you can look at it again there. It says, Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She began her prayer in sorrow, but as she rose from prayer, having remembered who God was, who she was, having committed to give everything back to God, as if she had celebrated a vow fulfilled, she went away comforted. And one of the great benefits of prayer is that it changes us to focus our Hearts on God is to remember that the Lord is sovereign over all and that He is a God of mercy. He is the one who hears the afflictions of His people. He is the wise, holy, good, all-powerful God who has blessed us with every good and perfect gift in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, for your heavenly Father knows what you need and cares for you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. John fourteen twenty seven. My peace I give to you. I am the good shepherd and lay down my life for the sheep. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Hannah gets up from her prayer. She goes home. She's no longer sad but joyful because she knows that God is in control. After all, she'd addressed him properly, right? As the Lord of hosts, the almighty God for whom nothing is impossible. She knew God could answer her prayer if that fit his purpose. But her experience, and this is my point, her experience in casting her cares upon God accomplished what we so often see in the Psalms, which is the one who is sorrowful casting their cares upon the Lord, the one whose bones have dried up, the one who feels afflicted, goes before the Lord and comes, leaves in joy. Leaves being reminded that God is in control. And with the confidence that he knows their burden. And so the passage ends with the birth of Samuel and his naming. Most simply, Samuel means asked of God. But the fact that Samuel had been asked of God and now stood in the flesh, isn't that a great testimony? Anytime somebody addressed Samuel as asked of God, well, I guess God answered. Because you're right there. And it was a constant reminder that God would hear the afflictions and prayers of his people. Would they be like Hannah and ask of the Lord? Will you? Who are you serving? What are you living for? What is your desire? Even though Hannah had spent years troubled by her situation, in the end she understood her purpose in being in the world, namely to live for the glory of God. And her purpose was to live in such a way, in such a manner, that no matter what the circumstances, the attitude of her heart would and could be, Lord, send the worst possible circumstances, which might be barrenness, might be constant torment by Panina, so long as you receive glory for it. Just like Job would say, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. If you can understand that attitude... And you can know where to go, you'll understand true joy. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this book of Samuel, this really an introduction and a reminder that you're setting things in place. It's, it's like putting all the characters in action and, and putting the plot together, especially as we consider the connection with the book of Judges that we studied not that long ago, and, and to realize that, Father, you do care. You are concerned about and, and delighting in hearing the prayers of your people, but ultimately you're, you're about bringing your glory to fruition. And in this case, you are about bringing Jesus and so, Lord, I thank you that in just as small, really, as, as a life, as Hannah, a barren woman whose, whose name sometimes seemed ironic, but one Lord who was truly favored, reminds us about joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.